Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Colonel Kim Campbell, U.S. Air Force retired female fighter pilot, talks service, career, survival, and lessons on leading with courage in life. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue. It's Bruce Cook, and it is time for the conversation, ladies and gentlemen. So great to be with you. So honored to have you listen. Thinking about a concept driving into the station, a concept that I think a lot of people have forgotten. It's a pretty simple couple words. Do you know the meaning of American exceptionalism? I think it's something that we've kind of lost in our our culture. Uh, there have been so many... So many changes in the last couple of decades. American exceptionalism simply is the core of the so-called American way of life. And that is simply that you don't have to be a famous politician. You don't have to be a movie star. You don't have to be a great athlete to be exceptional in America. American exceptionalism is every man and woman, every person rising to their best level doing their best effort, dreaming their biggest dream, working hard, paying attention, facing their fears and challenges, doing their best. All of the superlatives I could keep naming and naming and naming, but we've lost that sense of how important it is to be an exceptional individual, American or otherwise, but in this case, American, because that's who we are, that's where we are, that's what we are. Part of it is because in this new age, this new age of equality and diversity and opportunity for all, the ironic thing is we have sort of lost the essence of opportunity for all because we're so busy worried about who's going to be the first this and the first that, the first woman, the first pilot, the first this, the first CEO, the first gay person, the first black woman, the first Mexican president. Everybody's a first. But these are all American people. American exceptionalism is so important because what it says is, and I admit that we are in a time when being the first is important for a lot of, a lot of cultures, races, religions, creeds. I understand that because so many people were left out of the boardroom for so long. However, in doing that, in pursuing that equality and that, and that thirst for equal justice among all citizens, don't lose the idea that working hard and becoming your best is what truly matters. Because otherwise, and I think a lot of folks are thinking this out there, otherwise... We dumb our society down. We dumb our society down to a lowest common denominator where mediocrity is acceptable because it's not important to be exceptional. And I know that sounds really weird, but it's true. 
So our show today, forgive me for that soap opera, uh, not soap opera, soapbox opening, but I mean it. I mean every word of it. Our show today is going to focus on the ideal of American exceptionalism because I'm going to introduce you to our guest who exemplifies that concept. And we're going to find out why, and we're going to find out how it happened, and we're going to, we're going to get a little bit of life story and a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of advice for the future. Our guest today is a woman, an exceptional woman, one of America's only female fighter pilots. She was a hero, and I'm sure she'll object to that term, in the Iraqi Freedom Campaign. And she has written a book. It is entitled Flying in the Face of Fear. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is a part memoir talking about her experiences in that position as a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. And it is also something of a warning, something of a, of a Bible for what the future may hold without great leadership, without people that strive to be exceptional in what they do, against all challenges, against all odds, against all fear. And it applies to our everyday life. It applies to our business life, our family life, our relationships, all of it. This being the 20th anniversary of Iraqi Freedom 2023, I'm proud to welcome to our hour together on radio tonight, Kim Campbell, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. Kim, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you. I understand you're calling tonight from Colorado, and uh, we welcome you with open arms. Talk to me briefly about your journey. I want to know how you ended up being a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. What was your youth like? What, what was the trigger? That's a great question. I actually grew up in San Jose, California, so uh, I uh, spent many years in California, and when I was in the fifth grade, I decided that I wanted to be an astronaut, and that came about in 1986. Um, I think many of us remember where we were when we watched the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger, and for me, watching it in the first 73 seconds, it was this thrill of flight, this excitement of watching the astronauts launch and then watching, unfortunately, the devastation kind of play out in front of us when we lost the Space Shuttle Challenger. But for me, there is something in that moment, even in fifth grade, that I realized those astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was big and important, something that was more important than just themselves. And thankfully, I had supportive parents there with me. And I told them that this is something that I wanted to go do. I wanted to be an astronaut and uh, asked my dad, my mom, about how I could do that. And they said, well, a lot of the astronauts were pilots, and many of the pilots went to the Air Force Academy. And that, from that moment on, set my path. I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, become a fighter pilot, and ideally go on to be an astronaut. But you were in the fifth grade, Kim. Yes, The fifth grade. How many other kids in the fifth grade, male, female, were thinking about that? Anybody? Yeah, it's it's even hard for me. I mean, it's 35 years later now, and I still struggle to realize, like, how, why, when I was 10 years old, how could I become so committed to something? And it was just this passion for me. I decided that that was what I wanted to do, 
And I've actually learned since then that many of, you know, many pilots that are of my generation actually got a spark of inspiration from the Challenger astronauts. At that point in life, in that time of life, 35 years ago, your generation was kind of on the cusp of this whole new age of opportunity for all. So it was very possible for a young woman, in the fifth, a 10-year-old in the fifth grade, to dream that dream. It wouldn't have been possible 20 years earlier. What do you say today to the fifth grade 10-year-old girl sitting in a classroom looking for inspiration on her future? Well, I think... First off, I mean, when I was in fifth grade, women still couldn't be fighter pilots. I didn't know that. I had no idea that that was still prohibited by policy. Um, My parents never told me that. They told me to work hard and go after what I wanted, which is exactly what I would tell fifth graders today, is that if you have a dream, you have a goal, then you have to put in the work. But go after it. Set your goals, set your dreams, and then you have to put in the work because It was not easy. I mean, there were challenges along the way. There were mistakes. There were failures. There were bumps in the road. And in the end, it was worth it. But, you know, I had to put in the work. I had to put in the effort. It certainly wasn't easy, but I wouldn't change the experience. We're going to talk about all that work that you had to put in as as our time together moves ahead. But at what point did you actually find out that it was not possible for a woman to be a fighter pilot as a young girl when you were starting to pursue this dream. And how did you react to that? What did you say to your parents, and what did they tell you? Well, I actually figured out in high school, I was part of the speech and debate team, and as we were doing a debate about women in combat is when I realized that this role of being a fighter pilot was actually closed off to women at the time. And again, I credit the people around me. I mean, I had a wonderful speech and debate coach, Mrs. Kennett, uh, Nancy Kennett from Piedmont Hills High School in San Jose. And she, you know, she pushed us. She said, if this is what you want, then go after it. She called us power women, and she wanted us to go out and change the world. And I mean, those are big, lofty things to hear in high school. But really, I mean, that was a turning point for me. She said, look, if this is what you want, if policy prohibits it, then you know, go change it. Change the policy. Um, yeah, which, you know, thankfully I didn't have to do. There, By the time that I graduated high school, they opened up those positions to women, and uh, thankfully there were a few women that came before me who really set the standard and, and changed um, the way that things were looked at. But, yeah, it was um, to have people around you that support you and believe in you, even when you know, at the time it was limited for women was really important for me. I had a very um, encouraging group of people around me who supported me um, at a time when that wasn't something that women were really allowed to do. I opened, as you heard in the opening few minutes of our time together, the idea of being exceptional and following the dream. But it sounds to me like it was very important also, even though I kind of downplayed that in my open, that it was very important that there were some women ahead of you. How important was it, and did it make a crucial difference? If it hadn't been, if there hadn't been pioneers before you, do you think things would have turned out the same? Would you have been the quote-unquote first? Well, I think being the first at anything is actually really hard. It is demanding, and there's a lot of questions. And so I'm, I am thankful there were women that came before me. I mean, there were women that served in the Air Force in World War II. 
um, who did exceptional things and really set the standard for all of us. But to have a few women that broke those barriers, that broke the glass, as we say, um, to come before me and kind of lay the groundwork, that was huge. Um, you know, when I showed up to my fighter squadron on day one, I was still the only woman, um, but there were women that had come before me at times. So I think it is important. They kind of set the groundwork. They showed that women can do it too. But for me, more than anything, I just wanted to be credible and capable in the airplane. I knew that that was what was most important. I knew that I would be judged. I knew that people would be watching me. And I, I honestly put a lot of pressure on myself because I didn't want to these are my words, but I didn't want to ruin it for the women that followed me if I made mistakes or failed in any way. Um, but I, I knew that being credible and capable in the airplane for me was the biggest thing that I could do, the most important thing that I could do. What I found out was, one, the airplane doesn't care about the difference. It doesn't know. And truly, the guys in my squadron didn't care about the difference either, as long as I was credible and capable in the airplane. Did that come instantly, or did it take time to earn that kind of trust? Well, I think it it takes time to earn the trust. I mean, I think any new person, any new wingman in a squadron, any new person in a unit is going to be evaluated. They're going to be judged in many ways to see if they can perform. And so I think for me, it came over time. And certainly, uh, well, we had the um, opportunity to deploy to combat. And I was able to prove myself uh in training and then in combat very early in my career. And I, I honestly think that changed everything. And that is going to be another topic we're going to pursue as we go through our time together. But let me go back and say, do you think in the very beginning, when you were standing on that tarmac with all the other guys, there was any kind of undercurrent that, eh, we'll see how long she lasts? I don't know if it was like that per se. I think it was more of almost a bit of uncertainty in how, what is it like to have a woman in the unit? What do, how do we act? What do we do? I think it was just a lack of knowledge of, you know, they weren't really sure how to act around me, what to say, what to do. And once they realized that I was a pilot like everyone else, that I maybe sounded a little bit different on the radio, I think that really changed the dynamic. Let's pursue that a little bit more. It's very hard for a group of all one gender to adjust and to embrace that outsider. Were there awkward moments? Was there a person that mentored you? Was there, were there awkward moments? We hear now, we hear stories in the media quite frequently of still females having a lot of difficult, difficulty adjusting in the military. There's still harassment issues. There are, there are a lot of problems. Well, I think for me, I think one thing that really helped was that I went to the Air Force Academy. I was had been around many of the pilots in my squadron before, and so when I came into the squadron, I knew many of the pilots. Well, that's a big we were, difference. We we were classmates at the academy, so I think that did make a it made a huge difference. Yeah, that definitely but I did. Also, I think um, you know, were there awkward moments? Yes. Um, but it was more of just this unknown. I think I had an older pilot from an older generation. We were briefing together, and he said, you know, Kim, I've never flown with a female pilot before. I, you know, I just, he was very honest. He said, I don't really know how to act or what to say. And I said, you know, sir, I think for the most part, we're going to be just fine. I might sound a little bit different on the radio, but I, I think everything else is going to be just fine. And so it was just this, me almost just encouraging them just, 
hey, this is like everyone else. I'm still a pilot in the unit, um, and I can fly the airplane just like everyone else. How long was it before you were assigned overseas in Operation Iraqi Freedom? Well, I was in A-10 training. I was an A-10 pilot in 2001 when 9-11 happened. I finished out my training, and two months later, we were in Afghanistan. We were there for um, several months, and we came home, and very quickly we turned around and went to Iraq in 2003. So I had been in the unit for about a year with already one combat deployment uh, to Afghanistan before we went to support Operation Iraqi Freedom. Kim, we have to take our first break. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. It is The Conversation tonight on radio. My very special guest, Kim Campbell, former retired colonel, U.S. Air Force. We're talking about her life, her book, Flying in the Face of Fear. We're going to get so much more into it when we come back. Stay with me. Radio. AMA 30. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hogue Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hogue.org forward slash epilepsy care. We're turning up the talk here tonight on radio. I'm Bruce Cook. It's the Conversation Sunday. My guest, Kim Campbell, she also goes by the the call letters KC, and we're talking about her career as a retired colonel in the U.S. Air Force. Kim, I was mesmerized by the preface or the foreword in your book where you describe a near-death experience as a fighter pilot. Is there a way that you could... With condense that into a little bit and share a little bit with the the listening audience on radio tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a life changing, life defining moment uh, when my airplane was hit with a surface to air missile over downtown Baghdad. Uh, this was in Operation Iraqi Freedom in April two thousand three, and you know, this was like every other mission. We were supporting our troops on the ground. That was our primary mission as A-10 pilots, and they were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance, and we went in there to do everything that we could to help them get home safely. And as I was coming off my last rocket pass is when I felt and heard a loud explosion at the back of the airplane, and I knew immediately I had been hit. There was no doubt in my mind. The jet nosed over I remember seeing Baghdad below, the ground was getting closer, and I knew I had might have to eject. I instinctively pulled back on the control stick, and unfortunately nothing happened. I mean, absolutely nothing, and my airplane was just plunging to the ground completely out of control. I relied on my training. I went back to my training and quickly tried to analyze what was going on. I realized very quickly that I had lost all of the hydraulics on my airplane, which is what allows us to fly the airplane and I knew at this point I had two choices. I could either eject 
and potentially land in the hands of the enemy, or I could try to get the jet in our emergency backup system. And thankfully, I flipped the switch, and the airplane slowly started to climb up and away from Baghdad. And that was really the first moment that I felt like I was going to survive this, that I was going to make it out of there alive. In your in your words, you, you refer to it as something I had never heard of called manual revision. Is that the terminology to switch one of these fabulous uh, uh, state-of-the-art aircraft into a more normal plane? Is that how it works? Yes. It, well, it's called manual reversion. 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 Yes. And what it does is when you flip the switch, I mean, I had no hydraulics on the airplane anyway at this point. They had dumped out in the explosion and it allows us to fly the airplane in kind of old-school cranks, cables, and pulleys. I mean, this is like old-school flying. Um, and what it, if the switch? Least, what if that switch had not switched? Uh, I, things would not have gone well. I mean, I would have had to eject. I had no other choice. Um, I would have had to eject. And, you know, at the time, I remember looking down, hoping that I would potentially land over where our friendly troops were, where our coalition troops were, um, but it could have gone very poorly, for sure. And all of this transpired in a matter of seconds, correct? Yes, it was seconds. I mean, it was one of those things where I felt like time slowed down in many ways, but it really was um, seconds before I had to make this decision and get the airplane back under control. Would you say this was one of the greatest tests of your flying career? Absolutely. It was probably the hardest thing that I have ever done. And I think it, you never know when in that moment how you're going to respond. Will you be able to act? Will you make the right decision? Which is the perfect entry for me to say this is how you get into the, the meat of your book and yeah. and the very important ideas and ideals that you express about rely self-reliance about being prepared, about doing the work, about all of those things that we've hinted at in our first few minutes together. How do you, how do you know that you're ready when, when the ultimate challenge hits? Did you know instinctively you were going to survive this, that you were, you were going to make this work? Hello? You're tr- Did we lose Kim? Oscar, we lost Kim. This is terrible. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook, and it's a conversation without a conversation because our very good guest dropped out, and we're going to get her right back. In the meantime, if you're just tuning in, don't go away because she has so much more to say. We've just talked about this horrific experience as a pilot uh, over Iraq, over Baghdad, and surviving that potential disaster, falling into enemy hands. Kim goes on to use this as a catalyst into the book, Flying in the Face of Fear, and really then transfers all of the things that she talked about, the preparation, the uh, experience, the hard work, and how it applies to her life post-service, and how it applies to the lives of regular people who are trying to make things work for them in their life and facing the hardest challenges. And we know there's plenty of them today. For people of all ages, all backgrounds, the challenges are extreme. Life is beautiful, but it's not easy. And especially in a world that is in conflict as we are now, and certainly in our own 
in our own lives, in our own neighborhoods, within our own families. We're going to take a break, and hopefully when we get back, we will have Kim back with us. Oscar, take us to commercial. Radio AM 830. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute. Compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. We're back, everyone. I'm Bruce Cook. It's a conversation. We lost our guest, Kim Campbell, because she can land and survive an Iraqi bomb in her plane, but we can't keep the phone lines alive. So there you go. That's technology in America today. Kim, thanks for, for coming back with us. I think you're on your cell now. Is that correct? I am, but you know, it's fitting because I think I was talking about planning for contingencies and planning for things that go wrong. So uh, I'm glad to be back. Well, you know, it's funny. That you say that because when I gave the uh, the production form to Oscar, our producer in the booth, I originally had just written down your landline. And then I said, you know what? She gave me her cell phone, too. I'm going to write that number down just in case. And I wasn't going to do it because I the landline is going to be fine. But you're right. <laughs> Contingencies. <laughs> and this I had, is life, right? This happens. That we, we plan things. We think they're going to go exactly according to plan, and then they don't. And uh, I am a huge believer in planning for contingencies over Baghdad, uh, but also in life, because things don't go as planned. No kidding. Well, I'm glad we survived that one. <laughs> I, was, I was in the middle of the most serious question of my show with you, and that being, you know, when, when you finally survived this horrible incident, what was going through your head? Were you feeling like everything you had planned for and prepared for and studied for and worked for had worked, or were you saying a prayer? Um, both. <laughs> I, you know, part of it was just surviving this moment over Baghdad. And, and then I still had to get home. I mean, I was 300 miles from our home base. It was an hour of flight time in the A-10, and so there was part of me that was relying on training. How did you get home? How did you get home? Well, I I got the airplane out of Baghdad, and it was heavily damaged, but I managed to fly it the 300 miles back home, and it was uh, 
I will say it was mentally and physically exhausting. I mean, the airplane was flying, but not flying very well. Um, it was a very heavy airplane to fly. Uh, so I had that physical exhaustion flying home. But, it, you know, it's an, an hour of wondering if you're going to survive, wondering if you're going to make it back. And it's a lot of time to try to stay focused on the mission and the task at hand. So, yes, there was some preparation and knowing that everything that I had ever done, all those hard things made me better at doing this one really hard thing. Um, but it was also some prayer and, and hope on the way home that I would survive, that I would that I would survive and live to fly another day. The underlying theme of your writing talks about conquering all your fears, yeah. taking taking action rather than doing nothing, not being afraid of the judgment of others, not being paralyzed by the fear of the unknown. Talk about that and how you've applied that to your life, to your family. I understand that you're the mom of two daughters, I think, and your husband was also in the military. And after retirement, how did that how did that all work for you moving forward? Well, I think it's, you know, I've looked, I've had time to now reflect on that mission. And I think, you know, in that moment over Baghdad, I didn't really, I didn't think that I felt scared. I didn't think that I felt fear. And then I went back and listened to the audio from the mission and I can hear the fear in my voice. I know it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life, but I had to take action if I was going to survive. And what I've realized looking back on my life and looking back on my career is there are many times that I felt fear, whether it was walking up the bring me men ramp, which is what we called it at the time at the Air Force Academy to become a basic cadet, whether it was walking into my fighter squadron on day one, whether it was raising two kids while my husband deployed to Afghanistan, whether it was leading a thousand military and civilian personnel. In all of those moments, there was some sense of fear or nervousness that went with it. And what I've realized is that fear and that anxiety, that stress is normal. It is all about what you do in the moment that really matters the most. Do you think the rest of us Americans have that same ability that you do, to have that same constitution? I, I don't think we do, but I sure wish we could get it. Well, I mean, it's the things that I have two boys, and it's the same thing that I try to teach them, where they're nervous or anxious about something. It is all about putting in the work, put in the work so that in that moment you can overcome your fear and you can take action. Uh, but it's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that doesn't come along unless you put in the work to make it happen. And I think for me, when I realized that moment over Baghdad, the reason I was successful is because I put in the work in advance. I had prepared for that moment. I had practiced it. I had visualized it. I had thought about it. We had talked about it. And we talked about those worst-case scenarios so that when that time comes, you are prepared. Well, I guess I got your children wrong when I told our listening audience, that you had two daughters, but you have two sons. I do. How old are they now, and are they pursuing their mom and dad's careers, or they got other things in mind? Well, I have a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old, so, and uh, I've, I've got one that is interested in going, potentially going to the Air Force Academy, and the other wants to go to West Point <laughs> to become a, a special operator. Yeah, I guess so. they're following in your footsteps. <laughs> The 10-year-old, have you shared with your 10-year-old your 10-year-old experience in the fifth grade and wanting to be an astronaut? Does he know this story? They do, but, you know, um, I'm still their mom, and I'm still really not that cool. So, <laughs> they, you know, they do better listening to other people than they do to me. How, sure. many, how many 10- and 14-year-old boys 
have a mom that was shot down over Baghdad? Well, not many, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, my husband was an A-10 pilot as well, so um, we certainly have some stories to tell. And, and now that they're a little bit older, we've we've shared a little bit about our experiences with them and kind of the things that we've been through and why we think that we were able to overcome those things. And I think even though they're talking about, you know, their fears and whether it's, you know, being a new freshman in high school or trying to make the soccer team, we try to share some of the lessons that we learned along the way. Okay, now how does this all translate to non-military people in the real world of commerce, business, whatever they're doing, and the challenges that we face in these economic times that are a little bit strange for a lot of people? Well, I think the thing is we all face fear in our lives, and it may not be a life-or-death situation or flying a fighter jet over Baghdad, but we face fear of the unknown, fear of change, fear of not meeting expectations. You know, these things can be daunting, they can be stressful, and they can paralyze us, right? Sometimes when we feel that fear, instead of taking action, we can do nothing. We can freeze. We decide not to have those tough conversations. We decide not to hold each other accountable. You know, we resist change. And, you know, when that happens, we lose the opportunity to improve. We fail to excel in this competitive environment. We put ourselves and our team at risk. And so as hard as it is, we have to take action, even in the face of fear. Another thing that strikes me in the theme of this book is that how important leadership is, but also how important that leadership is in dealing with the team. In other words, life is both the individual leader setting the tone creating the tone, making the decisions, but it also involves the team. In this day and age, everything is team this and team that. But without the leadership, Kim, I don't think things work. Talk to me about that experience and that aspect of your book. Well, I think I think the leader very much has to set the example. I think, you know, no matter what, it is about the team, but you need a leader that can create that environment of trust, that can create connections. We like to call it a wingman culture. In a fighter squadron, we understand that we're part of something bigger and more important than ourselves. We understand the role that we play and where we fit in. We understand that we have to hold each other accountable if we're going to elevate the performance of our team. But that doesn't come about without a leader that can set the example to create those conditions, to create that environment of trust. So I think it does absolutely start with the leader, and the team will follow the leader's lead. We also see every day that culture and society is breaking down because that's not working on a day-to-day basis in real life in a lot of situations. People today, a lot of people seem very entitled, entitled to their opinions. They don't trust anybody. They certainly don't trust their bosses or the so-called leaders in whatever the community thing they're involved with. And everybody's challenging everything. So my question is, from your experience as a military leader, what examples or what ideas could you share for people in the civilian life to earn that trust and to convince the people working with them that they have their back and that they need to have your back in order to succeed at your goal? To me, it comes down to creating connections and at a very human level. 
I think when we take the time to create connections and just talk to people and find out where they struggle, find out what they value, talk to them on that very human level. And I think it it very much can start with a leader walking around, getting to know their team, finding out, you know, what they do in the organization, what do they contribute, and really just taking the time to get to know them. For me, that's what I found was most effective. I mean, I certainly wasn't an expert in all the areas on the team you know, that I worked with, but I took the time to learn from them and to let them show me what they do, to ask their ideas, to show that I am interested in their input. Um, so I think it, it, and that boils down to creating that connection, creating that trust on a team. Um, it is about talking to people and showing that human side of leadership. This is off track a bit, but can I ask you, do you think that we have become a soft and weak American culture because people are not doing anything that we're talking about? No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily soft or weak. I think there's, there's two sides to this, right? We can be strong and we can be compassionate at the same time. We can be tough and hold the line, but we can also do it with kindness. And so I think it is a balance. I think we create those connections. We build the trust. We show compassion and empathy. We show kindness but we also hold each other accountable. We tell people when they're not meeting expectations. We let people know when they're not making the cut. Uh, so I think it, it is a bit of a balance, and you, we see both sides of it. We see when it's gone too far on either side, and it's just not effective. When does it demand real toughness in the face of entitlement and when the, when the leader, the boss, has to say enough you, we have to do it this way. There is no more discussion. And is that possible to do in, as you say, a respectful and kind way, or does the hammer hit the gavel? Well, I think there is a way to do it. I mean, I think sometimes in the military, people are surprised that we actually take the time to explain the why behind our decisions. And I have found that as a leader, you know, I will take input, I will listen, and at some point I am going to make a decision. Assuming I have the time and this isn't like a life or death in combat situation, I'm going to take the time to share that with my team. Because even if it's an unpopular decision, I'm going to say, look, I know this wasn't the popular choice, but here's why I made the decision. Here's the reason that I'm moving forward in this way. And, you know, they may not like it, but at least they'll understand where I'm coming from. And it does create buy-in when we can ask opinions and we can listen to ideas. But at some point, that is, you know, that is the leader's job. They have to make the tough calls. They have to make the tough decisions. Do you have a specific example you might share? Well, I think um, in, during my time as a leader, I have, you know, I've been put in that position where I have to make a decision. Um, and sometimes um, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like the experts. Um, in when I had the opportunity to lead a team of about a thousand military and civilian personnel um, overseas, I had to make a decision about the strength of our fire department. I am not a firefighter. <laughs> this is not my area of expertise. And so I took some time to really listen. There was a lot of differences in opinion. And in the end, I made a decision. I made a choice about the number of firefighters that we would have. And not everybody was happy with that decision, but I walked them through it. And here's the thing. After about six months, it was the wrong decision. I made the wrong choice. And I went back to my team and said, look, I made the wrong choice. I listened to their input. I understood that we cut too far. 
and we brought in more firefighters. I mean, it just, sometimes we make the best decision we can based on the information we have. But in the end, if you make the wrong decision, you admit it, you acknowledge it, you change it, and then you move on. Or you get thrown over the the bridge. I don't <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me ask you this. What was it like dealing with a thousand people under you in a military situation? Um, you know, it was it was challenging in many ways because I had been I had been a commander previously and I really got the time in a, a group of about hundred and fifty military and civilian personnel and I really got to know them. I got to know the people on an individual level. With a thousand people, that's a lot different and you can't always do that. Um, but I still tried as best I could to understand at least the roles that they played and where they fit in and took the time when I visited the various locations around South America, Central America, and the Caribbean to talk to them and get to know them and find out where their struggles were and where I could where I could do things to help. But it was a tremendous opportunity to be in charge of that number of people and to do some very critical roles um, in terms of counter-drug operations, humanitarian assistance, and disaster relief. I mean, it was just a, a tremendous opportunity and learning experience for me, but also to serve our men and women. Where does your, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like you're not that long into your retirement from the Air Force. Where Where's your life taking you? Obviously, you've written this book, and we're going to sell this book, and people are going to read it, but is this your future, or are you looking at other avenues? No, you know, I retired about a year and a half ago, and uh, like we've talked about, I've got two boys who are 10 and 14, and so my my goal is to be home more, to spend more time with them, and so I've uh, taken on a role as a leadership coach and an executive coach. Um, I also do some keynote speaking, and right now the book is keeping me pretty busy, um, but that that is that is it for me. That is kind of my plan, and I mean, I guess we'll just see where this chapter takes it, but um, it is nice to have a little bit more control over my schedule for a change. Good for you is all I can say. It sounds wonderful. Uh, it's time for our last break. Kim, we're going to come back, and i got some tough ending questions for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. It's The Conversation. Tonight, Kim Campbell, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired. We'll be back in two minutes. Radio. AM 830. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine Program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949 949- 537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash sign help. We're all trying to hold on. I'm Bruce Cook. The conversation live on radio tonight. My very special guest, Kim Campbell. Kim, we're coming to the end of our conversation. And 
the hardest question that I can ask you is, is America prepared for conflict? Is the military ready? Is the Air Force ready? Will we need our servicemen and women? Or is that perhaps something that will never happen again? That is a hard question. I think, you know, I, I come at this from a couple different perspectives. One, I think as a military, we are ready. I mean, we have been training, uh, we have been developing technology based on a near-peer or peer competitor. I mean, this is what we do. This is what we focus on. We look at that worst-case scenario, and we train to it. That being said, you know, having been in war, having been in conflict, if there is a major conflict, I think, will we be ready military? Yes. But I think from a country perspective, I mean, I don't think it, I mean, it's going to be a time where there will be losses, there will be fatalities, and perhaps more so than before. And so I think that's, that's really the struggle. I mean, as a military member, as somebody who has been in conflict, who has done it, I honestly hope we never have to do it again. I think, you know, it's this thing, once you've been there, once you've seen it, it's something you never want to go back to. Um, So I do struggle with that question a little bit, because I do think we're ready But I will tell you that I hope we never have to go there again. Well put. I will say that the whole concept is obviously very disturbing and scary to anybody. But as an observer of our society and media, I am very concerned that we are are so not prepared for the emotional, let alone the actual casualties of a potential conflict, We have a huge society of young people in the so-called, quote-unquote, wokeness of the new age, who are very much globalist and very much open to the fact that all human beings deserve, and deserve is a very, very difficult word, but deserve equality and justice and to be respected and cared for under any and all circumstances. They are certainly not paying attention to the fact that we still live in a very volatile, very difficult planet. And then on the other side, on the very conservative side, we have a very large group of very old age, old world, mostly Republican people who are very nationalistic and isolists. They are very against American support of Ukraine in the war against Russia and probably would not be so willing to support Taiwan if they are needed, if America is needed to support Taiwan, as we have promised to do, in the face of Chinese aggression. Anyway, it goes on and on. I guess what I'm saying is we are so divided on this that if we are faced with something, I don't know how this country is going to respond. We certainly did respond to 9-11, but how quickly, or maybe not so quickly, what do you think, did we lose that patriotism? I hope not. I mean, maybe that's the the lofty idea, but I hope not. I mean, I think sometimes those hard things that we go through bring us closer together. I've seen that on a much smaller scale. We saw that during 9-11. But I think if, you know, if that time comes, I hope that we would come together as a country. I think um, that if nothing else, we would support our men and women in uniform doing something that is incredibly difficult. 
Um, but I think, you know, as a country, yes, there is, um, we are divided. There is struggle right now into coming together for a common purpose and a common goal. If it was, if we got to that point where we were in a major conflict again, I guess I, I personally would hope that we would come together as a country and certainly support our men and women serving overseas. A lot of our congressmen do not want to fund more money to the military. It still is a very, very large portion of the national budget. But there's a lot of talk to cut back, cut back, cut back. What say you? Well, I think, uh, you know, we've got to prioritize what is most important. And I think, you know, when we, what happens is if we cut too far, then we potentially lose readiness. We lose that capability. We lose the capability to deter that future fight. And I think that's that's the struggle. That's the balance. I, there is definitely money needed in other places, but how do you prioritize? How do you figure out what is right? And that is what, you know, I hope that we can do. We can find that balance because... Once we cut too far, then it becomes a dangerous game, because then deterrence is not truly an option for us. This is really the hardest question of all to ask a former Air Force pilot. And I start by saying it is your opinion, not that of the government, not that of the military. If it was up to you, should America send fighter jets to Ukraine? Well, I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, in recent history about sending A-10s to Ukraine. Um, I think sending fighter jets, not necessarily involving American personnel, but sending fighter jets um, is a very real possibility. I think, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the A-10s. Is that the best platform? Not necessarily. But we can't just send the fighter jets. We have to send training. We have to logistics all of the backside of this, because we don't want to just hand over something and it, it not work in a couple months. It has to has to coincide with an agreement for training and logistics and parts and maintenance. So it's a bit more complicated, um, but certainly I think that is something that we can do. I mean, certainly from a standpoint of supplying a, a fighter jet that is already exported to locations throughout the world versus something like the A-10 that really has never been sold to any other country. Um, but I, I think that is something that we should certainly look at. I mean, I think it's definitely something to evaluate and determine if it's the right course of action. On that note, we are done. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible hour. Flying in the face of fear, ladies and gentlemen, a fighter pilot's lessons on leading with courage. Kim Campbell, get it at your favorite bookstore, your favorite website. Kim, thank you. Thank you so much. All the best to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for the conversation tonight. We'll be back again next Sunday to talk about life. Be well, be safe, be happy. been listening to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear the Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM 830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.